You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host, Rhonda. Uh, today's topic, really interesting, as, as I normally do, I was uh, watching a segment of CBS Sunday Morning, y'all. I try to catch that. Uh, shoot, I missed 60 Minutes. I gotta see what's <laughs> what was on 60 Minutes this week. Uh, you get a lot of great things, a lot of disclosure things that they put in those two programs. Well, this week, they were talking about lithium batteries. Now, we do know that lithium is on the periodic table, or yeah, table, which I should have paid attention in high school, whatever. Um, But what I didn't know is uh, what lithium comprised of, and it sparked my interest when they were talking about uh, lithium batteries being the way for the future for EVs, which is, you know, they always got to give something an, an acronym, the acronym for electric vehicles. So, Let's get to it, because in that particular CBS Sunday Morning episode, they were talking about how Panasonic supplies Tesla Motors with their lithium batteries. And when I found out, you know, what lithium comprised of, it all made sense why Tesla is in Nevada and it kind of brings everything full circle on a lot of the stuff that we talk about. So just real quick, let me um, bring up about uh, Panasonic being tied to Tesla and providing them exclusively with lithium batteries. Uh, so this is from Bloomberg. Panasonic bets on Tesla's beer can battery to unlock 25,000 electric vehicles. And as you can see, that was from April of this year. Uh, Panasonic Corp is betting that close to a century of experience making car batteries has prepared it to manufacture a difficult-to-provide next-generation battery championed by Tesla Inc. as the key to unlocking cheaper and more ubiquitous electric vehicles. Elon Musk, Tesla's chief executive officer, first unveiled the 4680 battery at Tesla's Battery Day in September as a massive breakthrough in sale technology that will make it possible for his company to produce EVs that sell for $25,000, roughly a third less than Tesla's most basic Model 3. While Tesla plans to make the sales in-house, it has also asked its oldest battery supplier, Panasonic, to begin producing them as well. Now, I do want to say when they were showing um, this relationship on CBS Sunday morning, 
Panasonic has a division in the same building. Now, I don't know which building in the Tesla complex. I'm assuming Tesla has more than one building in Nevada, but what they showed in the, uh, not 60 Minutes, the CBS morning show was that they would literally have an automatic cart that would, it played music, I forget which music it was playing, that would uh, load the batteries up, the completed ba lithium batteries up, and on this uh, automatic cart, it would go from the Panasonic plant, which is connected in the same building as the Tesla plant, over to the Tesla side, okay? So that's how deep this relationship is between the two. The catch, the thicker and more voluminous 4680 cell, named after their dimensions of a 46 millimeter diameter and 80 millimeter height, are still largely unproven. Industry experts even question whether the batteries, which resemble a downsized version of aluminum cans used for sodas and beers, are possible to mass produce. There are significant tech technological issues to get past, issues that many in the industry have been trying to tackle for years. Ron, a transportation and mobility analyst at Wood McKenzie. If achievable, these battery cells would be groundbreaking, but the jury is still out on whether they're deliverable. Um, okay, so I'm just trying to see what else I want to get out of this, uh, out of this article. Rather, let me see here, family. Let me see here. Okay. Let me see. Just a second, family. All right. So let me see how far I want to go into this. I think we're going to be done with this. Um, but the purpose of me showing this is just to, <clears throat> number one, let you know um, the relationship that Panasonic has with Tesla uh, making the lithium batteries. It never fails, y'all. I promise you. I promise you. Literally, I stopped this, handled my business, did my thing. A couple hours later, I come back, turn it back on. Here we go with the phone. <laughs> okay. All righty. So I think we're done with this. So I just wanted to show you all the relationship with Panasonic is exclusively making the batteries, the lithium batteries for Tesla. Now, here is why Tesla is really in Nevada. Okay. Because in that uh, CBS Sunday morning special, this totally blew me all the way back. A company said that, and I can't remember the company's name, <clears throat> said that they are harvesting lithium from volcanoes. And I immediately perked up. Because if you understand what volcanoes are, you would perk up also. OK, 
okay? So some of you that rock with us Thursday uh, on Truth Uncompromised Live, we kind of went over this stuff, but for the family that's just doing the podcast only, uh, here's where I'm going with this. So just hold on a second. Let me uh, bring in this information. <coughs> Excuse me. Here we go. Bear with me here. All right. So let me uh, bring this in and let's display this screen again. Okay. And they keep family taking this video down. They have to keep premiering it. Um, the one channel that I got it from originally, that channel has already been taken down. Uh, so thank goodness, shout out to the people that keep putting this video up. It's called The Lost History of Earth, full documentary by Iranon. This is part two. As you can see, this puppy is eight hours long. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out, even if you have to break it up. He does an excellent job. This particular video is by Extended Thoughts. Okay, but the author, the original author on it is Iranon. And uh, I think this Iranon person was banned off of YouTube. So people keep uploading uh, this particular video. All right, so um, of course I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I want to get to the point for those of you that don't know or those of you that have forgotten this what volcanoes really are. So here we go. When we look at tree rings under a microscope, we see similar geometric patterns of the hexagon. Microscopic photographs of petrified wood shows these same hexagonal columns. But according to the scientific priests, there exist anomalies in our world. The basalt column, Perfect hexagonal columns that mirror the tight efficiency we see in organic living matter. Wikipedia and mainstream science tell us that columnar basalt formed due to the cooling of magma or lava flows. This is what lava looks like when active. And this is what it looks like when it has cooled and hardened. So how did magma or lava cool down and form hexagonal shapes so perfect in their geometric symmetry? This is Giant's Causeway in Ireland. Does it look like magma lava formed these huge, perfectly shaped hexagonal columns? I want you to imagine that you are a child again, beset with curiosity at the wonders of the world. What do you see? Devil's Tower in northeastern Wyoming, the world's most famous structure of basalt columns, a pilgrimage for rock climbers who venture up the seemingly endless chimneys between the columns. They tell us it was formed by igneous lava. What do you see now? 
I know what you see. Traces of old volcanic magma that cooled and formed a rock mesa. We weren't even given a chance. We all know this film. Steven Spielberg weaving his sorcery and solidifying the satanic name, Devil's Tower, and pushing the alien agenda on us once again. Constant distraction. It wasn't always called this. The Native Americans called it Mateo Tepe or Great Bear Lodge, and there is entire folklore surrounding it. It wasn't until 1875 that Richard Irving Dodge gave it a satanic name, and which President Roosevelt immortalized in 1906 when he designated it the first U.S. national monument. This is not solidified lava flow. It is the remains of a giant silicon-based tree. This is the real petrified tree, and this is the distraction, the control, the lie. These were not formed from volcanic ash; they are remnants, tiny branches and twigs from something much larger and long forgotten. Look closer as these climbers venture upwards. You can see the individual hexagonal towers, much like the individual hexagonal fibers. Some fibers become loose over time and break away from the overall mass. Look closer at the cracks and broken parts of the outer stem. It's petrified epidermis, the layer of cells that cover the stems, much like our connective tissue fascia. The stems do not enter the ground horizontally, but bend into the ground like the base of a tree. Look at the plant's stem flax again. See how the mass becomes smaller at the edges. Now look. We see the same thing here. Imagine the climber who thought of nothing else but rocks and never saw the tree. Look at the other basalt column wonders of the world. Please tell me how magma or lava formed this. Did the magma flow just stop in midair and begin to cool and solidify into these hexagonal columns? Just as divine creation gave other organisms the innate intelligence of hexagonal efficiency. These columns were part of living trees. Our flat Earth is fractal. It is a case of the microcosm and the macrocosm. A great, majestic wonder, with nothing similar in sight for miles around it. Lava could not have formed this, even if it tried. But you didn't notice, did you? Can you not see it? We were born with sight, and we've become blind.
Your eyes have become traitors over time. Look closer. The top is flat. This tree was cut down. And this was just a small one. These giant tree stumps are literally everywhere. Look. Not all of them were cut down, only the really good ones. Others were blasted, torn and laid down. Look.
Why were these trees cut down? What on earth happened? The basalt columns are likely a particular kind of plant, and not all of the giant trees of the world are formed from basalt columns, but other silicon structures. The giant trees were diverse in species and type, much like we see in our trees today. Not all of what we've learned to call mountains are giant trees. Eyes exposed to the light take time to adjust, but you will start to spot the difference. This is not a volcano; it's a pile of loose waste that was generated and piled up by giant machines. Okay, so bear with me.、Uh, I know that was a lot to. Let me make sure my mic is on. Yep, it's on. I know that was a lot to get through, and I just oh my god, I get sad every time. <sighs> I just see、um, the amount of terraforming、uh, that went on on the planet, and、um, once you see it, you know, with your eyes, not only your physical eyes, but more importantly, with your spiritual eye, you're just you're never the same. You will always look at what they're calling mountains differently, and you will be able to tell the difference. So I took you through the whole ancient tree analogy, so you would be able to tell the difference between an ancient tree and what they are calling a volcano, and hence、uh, the topic of this story.、Uh, the topic of this story. The topic of this podcast regarding、uh, lithium batteries, okay? Because remember, before I went in, into this video, I told you that、um, they are extracting, and I hate to even say extracting. Let's call it for what it is, family. They are mining. They are mining lithium, okay? And volcanoes are one of their sources. Now, I also want you to keep in mind that,、uh, ironically, I think it was TNT. TNT this weekend 
And nothing is a coincidence. They ran the beautiful movie Avatar. It was literally on last night. That movie is telling you the story of planet Earth and how invaders came to planet Earth and terraformed for the purpose of extracting resources. And you know the theme of that movie was to move the indigenous people off of the land for the purpose of what? Tearing down that ancient sacred tree to get to the what? Get to the minerals, i.e. resources. So those ancient trees that he was showing you, which have been renamed mountains, it is the same difference, okay? So he's going into this telling you that um, all mountains are not the same. Some of the mountains that you see uh, or what they are calling volcanoes are the remnants or the waste from all of the mining that was done on planet Earth. Okay, so I'll shut up and roll it. It has a perfect cone shape like all loose structures. Lava and volcanic ash contain high levels of silica. They piled the grounded silicon and chemical waste of their activities here. These chemicals sometimes react with each other and sometimes burn. Any farmer will tell you compost heaps can start to heat up to the point of spontaneous combustion. The microcosm and the macrocosm. Silicon is the second most abundant element found in Earth's crust after oxygen. Silicon is structurally very similar to carbon. Many scientists have theorized that silicon-based life is possible. When silicon interacts with oxygen, it turns into quartz. This is a carbon-based tree. And this is a silicon-based tree. History is a lie. There was a silicon era in which trees grew to enormous heights and they were made primarily of crystal, just like quartz. What we call rocks today are really just fragments of old giant trees and other living organisms. Rocks and stone are the phase between silicon and carbon life forms. There are no petrified organisms, just the remains of silicon era organisms. More than 75% of the Earth's volcanoes reside in the Ring of Fire, a major area in the basin of the Pacific Ocean, the deepest ocean on Earth. Look at this image of our oceans without water. You can see the scarring and trenches on the ocean's floor. This is where they dug and mined the most. The Ring of Fire is home to the deepest trench on Earth, the Mariana Trench. It measures 2,000 
550 kilometers in length and is over 10,000 meters deep. Look at all the other trenches in this area. It is not a coincidence that the largest volcano on Earth, the Tamu Massive, is located right next to these trenches under the water. It is the size of the United Kingdom. The extent of the mining here has created 452 ocean waste piles, or what they call volcanoes. You see, there never used to be oceans on Earth like we know. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, I know that's interesting, y'all. I know y'all like, keep playing, keep playing. So again, <clears throat> you can get this video. And child, they keep taking it down. So shout out to the people that have diligently been uh, putting this work back up. Uh, this is by a gentleman named Iranon. And this is the lost history of Earth. This is the full documentary. I've seen people break it up into different parts. And even here, this person said this is part two. Uh, this is off of a YouTube channel called Extended Thoughts, right? So shout out to um, Aranon and shout out to Extended Thoughts uh, for this particular information. So what I wanted you all to get out of that is for you to understand what the ancient trees were, what volcanoes are, and the amount of mining or terraforming that went on on the planet, okay? Someone came, just like an avatar, and dug up a lot of minerals off of the planet, okay? Now, come full circle, okay? And not only that, when they dug up those minerals and terraformed the planet, it created waste lands or bad lands. Those desert areas, and I believe the desert areas were also created uh, based on uh, wars that took place with uh, nu either nuclear or what they called uh, that scalar technology or that do direct energy weapons that created deserts which threw off of Earth's natural ecosystem, okay? So what we're looking at, family, with the deserts and even sand itself, sand from the beach that is made up of silicon, grounded up silicon from those ancient trees, volcanoes, Again, as the gentleman said, they are just the waste pile from all of the mining that went on. Okay? And we still see that same mining equipment today. They use the same equipment. Okay? And go back and watch Avatar. You see them using that exact same equipment in Avatar to take down that ancient tree. Okay? So let's get to um, the part about an ancient volcano. This is coming off of the world.org. 
ancient volcanoes may contain vast deposits of lithium, a crucial element in modern batteries. So let's see if we can listen to the story. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. When it comes to volcanoes, there isn't exactly a crystal ball that will tell us when the next eruption will take place, but there is crystal debris, which is helping researchers see what's going on below the surface of a volcano. These crystals, formed in the magma chamber, are ejected along with the lava and volcanic ash during an eruption, but trapped inside these crystals is a bit of magma, preserving all the details of what it was like inside the chamber. Scientists are banking on these crystals to tell us a lot of things, including what happens right before a big eruption, sort of like the black box in an airplane. Maybe it can tell us about the ideal conditions for producing the increasingly important element of lithium. Joining me to share what they found when they gazed into these crystal structures are my guests. Carrie Cooper is a professor of geochemistry at the University of California, Davis. Carrie Cooper, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks very much. And Tom Benson recently completed his Ph.D. in the Department of Geological Sciences at Stanford University. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And if you've got questions about volcanoes, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Let me go first to to Tom Benson. Uh, So, Dr. Benson, you uh, studied volcanic crystals to figure out the right conditions for producing lithium. I guess I'm wondering, why go after this important element? Well, as many of us listening can attest to, we all have these little devices in our pockets called smartphones. And many of us drive Teslas or other hybrid or electric vehicles. And in all of these modern technologies, lithium-ion batteries, which a component of which is lithium, is used. And these are very high, efficient, and relatively low-cost batteries that are taking the world by storm. Demand is drastically increasing by the day. So it's really important for us to understand where this lithium comes from in order to meet our future demand. Yeah, and where do we get the lithium from now? I assume we don't get most of it from volcanoes. No, no, we don't. Uh, Currently, most of the lithium around the world is mined from two main countries, Australia and Chile. Uh, They form in different types of deposits in those areas, and pegmatites, which are the very last stages of a granite, like Half Dome in Yosemite, Uh, You can find some lithium enrichment there. You can also find them in salt flats in South America, and that's where the main two current resources are located. Okay, so so tell us about what you find, how you use these these crystals to find where where lithium resides. What are you learning here? Right, so lithium is a really fascinating element because one of the fundamental properties of lithium is that it's a very volatile element. So when you think you have a volcanic eruption and it erupts into the atmosphere, people immediately think to places like Mount St. Helens, where you have this big gas plume that erupts. And since lithium is a volatile element, it escapes the atmosphere. And we can't measure it on the rock that solidifies on the surface of the Earth. So we have to use this tricky technique uh, called melt inclusions. And these are tiny little blebs of magma that are trapped in the crystals as it's growing within the magma chamber. So we get to analyze those little blebs because they preserve the pre-eruptive concentration of lithium before all of that degassing occurs. Okay, so so let me go to Dr. Cooper before I I learn too much about lithium, because I want to learn more. It's such an important element right now, as you were saying, in our smartphones, batteries, and everything else. So, So, Dr. Cooper, let's go to your study. What were you looking for, and what did you find? So we're using lithium in a different way. We're trying to use lithium 
um, as a signature to try to understand what does it look like beneath a volcano and what happens before volcanic eruptions. Um, And this is important because pretty much everything about an eruption, including whether a volcano erupt, is sort of set the stage while it's below the surface. And so we need to understand what's going on below there if we ever hope to forecast volcanic eruptions. So so tell us more what you're looking at. I I gave my layman's example in the introduction, but what are you learning inside these crystals that that might be trapped beneath? Yeah, so what we in particular are focusing on is trying to understand the temperature where the magma is stored beneath the reservoir. And that's important because it really controls the physical properties of the magma. So as it cools down, the cooler it is, the more crystals it has in it. And the more crystals it has in it, the more difficult it is to move. So, so let me ask you, when you think about a magma chamber, what's your kind of mental image of a magma chamber? Like, uh, like a scene from a movie with a whole bunch of lava broiling underneath, and, and uh, I don't want to go anywhere near it. It's just a bubbling mess altogether. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you think about this big, giant, bubbling vat of magma, and you are not alone in that. That's sort of the, the common conception of a magma chamber. And it turns out that what we're learning is that is mostly wrong most of the time. So most of the time, a magma chamber doesn't look like that. It looks like kind of a slurry or a slush with mostly crystal material and then some liquid in between it. So the real question then becomes... Okay, so did you catch what she she continuously said? What is in that magma, which is what? Crystals. And what were the ancient giant trees consisted of silicon which is really just a crystal and beneath the the root system of those ancient trees which you can still find today are literally the crystals that folks um, some folks including myself have like the quartz crystals the amethyst, etc., etc. Okay, so if they were cutting down the ancient trees, mining the ancient trees, and excavating the root system of the ancient trees, and then once they've extracted what they wanted, the the residue or the waste, they were piling it up, and because those were ancient huge ancient trees then that would mean a huge waste pile hence that waste pile would contain crystals okay and when you have a waste pile just like you have compost it heats up hence those big peaks that they are calling volcanoes today are really waste piles with remnants of the ancient trees and the crystals. Okay, so let me go back to what she's saying. To go from that state to the state where it's mostly liquid and more of the kind of roiling magma that you imagine when you actually see it during an eruption. Okay, so, so what do we learn from that? That sounds like something that's, that's new. So what can we glean from this information? Well, there's two really important implications in terms of, first of all, you know, our, the, the kind of surprising result of what we saw was that it's cold down there. I mean, it, it's not <laughs> Arctic cold like we would think of cold for human terms, but by magmatic terms, it's frigid. And so that means it's really pretty cold most of the time. And so 
there's two important implications, one of which is that when we're trying to use monitoring signals and look for these giant pools of magma that you envision, we shouldn't expect to find them most of the time. Most of the time, it's going to be mostly solid. And so when we do see a big pool of magma developing, that's, you know, it's not doesn't say that it's going to erupt for sure, but that's an unusual situation. We should keep a very close eye on that particular volcanic system. Is it something? The, well, please sorry. go ahead. The other important thing is that um, we're finding that it transforms from this mostly crystalline state to this mostly liquid state where it gets erupted. That happens very quickly on geologic times. That's years to decades. And so that means that we really need to have monitoring in place on these volcanoes so we can catch the early signals of something really starting to get going. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, th this is important information, but it doesn't replace the real-time monitoring of active volcanoes, certainly. Absolutely. So what it does is it gives us a way to interpret these active monitoring signals and understand what they mean in terms of volcanic hazards. If you've got questions about volcanoes for our vo volcano experts, uh, Kerry Cooper and Tom Benson, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Uh, turning back to you, uh, Tom Benson, when we're talking about what you've learned about lithium in active volcanoes, you're, you're not talking about finding volcanoes and going in there and mining for lithium in the same way that you would in some other part of the world, I assume. You're, you're talking about maybe reverse engineering the, the process of creating lithium. To, to tell me more, more what you're learning and how it might help us uh, create more super batteries that we need. Right. So with lithium deposits, it's we're really looking at really old dormant systems. And in particular, uh, what we call in the public, we call them supervolcanoes or large caldera systems. And what happens in a, I like to think of it as sort of like a recipe to create a lithium deposit. The first one is you have to be within thick continental crust. So within the, say, western United States where the crust is very thick, kind of like a granite in composition. The second component of the recipe is that you have to have this big caldera forming eruption or supervolcano. And that forms a giant hole in the ground because all of the magma that was once there is, current, is then evacuated out to the side and you have this big depression, kind of like at Yellowstone, which is the most famous example. And then in that hole in the ground, the next component is you have to have a caldera lake that forms. Think of a crater lake in eastern or, or western Oregon. And then the final component is that you have to have some sort of hydrothermal system or geyser or fumarole sort of activity that creates the exact right temperature and pH conditions in which clays that are enriched in lithium can form. So it's like this four-component recipe that leads to the ideal lithium deposit. Mm. And, and so these are found in the types of uh, caldera systems that, that you describe. How many of those are, are in the United States, roughly? Yes, yeah, so there are hundreds of them in the western United States, and we're talking over millions upon millions of years. The current act. Okay, pause. So I just want to make sure that we're clear. Child, this, this really makes me emotional just to know, oh my God, the amount. Terraforming that went on on this planet. And I don't believe them for a second that this was millions of years. Um, so this is the Crater Lake in Oregon that he's talking about. And they're calling it a, a caldera. Okay. Uh, the huge hole in the ground created by the ancient 
volcano eruption. You all see how huge this is. Okay? Now remember what we said volcanoes are. They are the waste pile of the ancient giant silicon trees being cut. So can you imagine? Can you imagine how high this pile was? We see how wide it is. So let's continue. Or is in Yellowstone in Wyoming, but throughout Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, there are these very large systems, uh, tens, hundreds of million years old, that occur. However, the only ones that would be feasible to be mined for lithium potentially are ones that preserve these caldera lake sediments, because that's where the deposit actually is. And the research that I published with my co-authors, Gail Mahood, who is a professor at Stanford, Matt Kobols, a researcher at Stanford, and Jim Rituba of the U.S. Geological Survey, we really focused on a 16.3 million-year-old supervolcano on the Oregon-Nevada border. And these have well-preserved caldera lake sediments, and it's actually the largest lithium deposit in the whole United States. Pause. Now, do you all understand why Tesla has a huge facility in Nevada. Do you all understand why Panasonic, who, who uh, is creating the lithium batteries for Tesla going in, into the electric vehicle cars, are right there in Nevada with Tesla? They are extracting lithium from the ancient volcanoes, which are really the ancient waste from the silicon trees. Do you all understand and get the connection how much terraforming slash mining had to go on on planet Earth for these areas that they are calling deserts? to be the way that they are. Let's continue. So that, that's pretty important. It's so interesting, Dr. Cooper, because we don't really think about volcanoes unless we're in in some sort of direct threat, right? We we worry right. about them exploding and, and devastating a city. But a lot of this research seems to suggest that we should be paying much closer attention to them all the time because they, they might help us out. Yeah, well, that too. But uh, even from the hazards perspective, I mean, it's, it, it really is an important question to think about, you know, why should somebody in the mid-continent care about volcanic eruptions when there's no volcanoes near them? But I think that um, one of the important messages to get out is that volcanic eruptions can have very widespread effects. The volcanic ash can be distributed hundreds of miles away from the volcano. And we saw in the 2010 eruption in Iceland how disruptive this ash can be. I mean, that was a very small eruption, and yet it shut down air traffic across Europe for days and caused billions of dollars of economic disruption. So, you know, if something like that were to happen in the west coast of the United States, it would certainly have some significant economic effects, even if you weren't living right next to it. The, the information we've been talking about that, that you're finding in some of this preserved magma, is this something that you can apply relatively quickly to, to help the monitoring system that obviously already is, is well in place around the world? 
Yeah, I mean, there are certainly techniques that are similar to what what we're doing that could be applied in real time. The particular technique that we're using takes a little bit more lead time to kind of prepare the samples and get the analyses done. So it's not something that we could do on the timescale of days and provide information that feeds back into the hazards assessment. Um, But so it's really more like we're trying to reconstruct the events leading up to the eruption so that people can then look at the events that are leading up potentially to an eruption or not and sort of compare that and see, are we headed towards an eruption or are we headed away from an eruption or how do we interpret the signals that we're getting? Uh, We have a call from Francisco uh, who's calling from Miami. Uh, Go ahead, Francisco. You're on Science Friday. Hi. um, Yeah, I just wanted to share with you guys that um, uh, in Nicaragua uh, this morning at 2.30 in the morning, Volcano San Cristobal, which is one of the largest uh, active volcanoes in Nicaragua uh, started a phase of uh, spewing ashes, and um, it's you know I was just so it was interesting for you guys to know, and those enthusiasts uh, with volcanic with volcanoes uh, can always visit, and and it's a tremendous show, and it's only two hours away on a flight from Miami or Fort Lauderdale. So I just wanted to share with you guys that uh, it's in the uh, community, it's in the uh, Chinandega, uh, city of Chinandega. Mm. And uh, also Volcano Masaya, which has a nice um, viewing area for it. You can see the magma really from the top of the volcano almost uh, looking down. So it's it, very interesting. It, it does um, sound, and Francisco, and, it, it does sound interesting. And, and I actually want to ask our, our guests to talk about it in just a moment. I do want to say that this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Tom, have you been following this Nicaraguan volcano that Francisco was talking about? Sorry, can you repeat that? Oh, I, I'm wondering if you've been following the uh, Nicaraguan volcano that our caller Francisco has been has been following. Yeah, due to technical difficulties, I couldn't really hear what was we were talking about. But uh, I have not been following that eruption specifically. However, uh, there are a bunch of active volcanoes that are erupting throughout the world, and I think that one of the most exciting ones that's happening right now is north of the Aleutian Arc in Alaska. And Carrie and I are currently in Portland right now. There's a international conference on volcanology. So it's the largest gathering of volcanologists ever that's currently occurring in Portland, Oregon. So we're looking into places like Nicaragua, Bogoslav, and all these other volcanoes, both dormant and active throughout the world, that are really, um, we're all looking at them from different perspectives, looking at the seismic activity, the crystals like we've been talking about on this program, and also just geologic mapping and a bunch of different angles. So it's an exciting time to be involved in uh, volcanology when we're all here together this week in Portland. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Cooper, can you tell us more about that? Because it, it does sound like a, an exciting time for a bunch of people who study volcanoes all to be in, in one big room together. What are the things that, that you're most excited about happening in your world? Yeah, well, one of the things that I'm most excited about in terms of, it's a really, I would say, broadly speaking, this is a great time in volcanology because we're at a point where different approaches to understanding volcanoes are all sort of coming together in a way that they haven't really been able to before. So the intersections between, for example, looking at the chemistry of volcanic rocks and looking at seismic signatures and looking at computer simulations, they're now actually at the point where they can start to directly uh, influence and interact with each other at the same kind of space scales and time scales. And so we're, we're sort of poised to make some really big advances. And one of the things I'm seeing is that in the volcano science community, there's a lot of excitement about this recently. I, but before we go, uh, Dr. Cooper and Tom had uh, 
had suggested this a, a moment ago, but th- there are a lot of active volcanoes uh, happening all around the world. How many are you and your colleagues monitoring? I mean, uh, how big <laughs> how big a task is this? It's a huge task. Um, and so, um, as I said, m- I personally am not involved directly in the monitoring effects, but the U.S. Geological Survey is tasked with that in the United States. And talking to my colleagues at the USGS, um, just, for example, in the Cascades, uh, out of the Cascades volcanoes, only maybe one or possibly two of them are what we would consider to be adequately instrumented in the sense that we could see this, the earliest signs of an eruption. And that's certainly not for any lack of will or effort. It's, it's simply a matter of resources. So we as, we as a society have to decide where we're going to put our resources, and we could do a lot better in terms of that. Uh, Carrie Cooper is professor of geochemistry at the University of California, Davis. Tom Benson recently completed his Ph.D. in the Department of Geological Sciences at Stanford University. Um, enjoy the rest of your time at this volcano conference. I hope you find out some more really cool stuff. I appreciate you joining us here on Science Friday. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, family. So, uh, <clears throat> again, this is from the theworld.org uh, Science Friday. This came out in 2017. Ancient volcanoes may contain vast deposits of lithium, a crucial element in modern batteries. It has been confirmed that these volcanoes absolutely contain lithium. Okay, Uh, just once again, now we should understand what volcanoes are. All right, so you're looking at this crater uh, in Oregon, which is the remnants of an erupted volcano. Okay, so you see the size of this puppy. So, which, this was a huge waste pile from the ancient trees that were cut down and the remnants of the waste from them excavating the ancient tree's root system. Because the ancient tree's root system has... Uh, crystals, amethyst, and other uh, minerals, okay? All right, so think of the amount. You heard the um, folks that were uh, given their take on the different volcanoes around the world. I heard them mention Alaska, and then uh, the caller called in and said Venezuela, and I think we saw it in a video some of those ancient trees being cut down in Venezuela. I think they even show ancient tree being cut down in Alaska. Uh, the Venezuela caller called in and said that a volcano had just erupted in Venezuela. So in other words, the waste pile from the excavation of the ancient trees and the ancient trees root system. So think about the amount of terraforming, what they are calling mining, that happened on the planet. Now, what I would love to know, and I'm I'm sure it will be revealed, because all of this stuff is being revealed, what truly happened on the planet. I want to know... What were the ancient trees used for and what were the uh, minerals and root systems slash crystals of the ancient trees used for? I am assuming they were taken off planet or out of this realm. 
Okay? So what we're seeing today, family, that, and I, you know, some of you in the mud flood community have heard this being talked about, that we are literally on earth living in a wasteland. Literally. So now they are literally mining, mining the waste from a waste pile, i.e. volcanoes. Just like with coal. Just like with coal. Coal is nothing but ancient tree remnants i.e. wood or silicon. That's all coal is. So we, for the past, I don't know how many hundreds of years, I don't know if it's been a thousand years, I don't know if it's been a thousands year. Maybe it's been a million years. I don't know about that. I, I, I'm just going on instinct and gut. Okay, I would have to get back in those tablets. I know it hasn't been a million years because it's been 450,000 years. So yeah, it definitely hasn't been a million. So it's been a couple of hundreds of thousands of years that the mining took place. Okay. So what we are seeing is the wasteland remnants of an invasion of planet Earth and the stripping of planet Earth or Mother Earth's resources. And now they are down to the bare bones of excavating the remnants and the waste from the ancient trees, okay? So now we should understand why Tesla is in the desert, which is clearly the remnants of some type of war with some type of high-scale technology, probably either a nuclear weapon or a direct energy weapon, that turned, obliviated everything, turned it into dust and ancient trees cut down to make it sandy because sand is nothing but silica, the remnants from the silica trees. Okay, so something happened out west where you see vast amounts of wasteland or bad lands. Okay? Same with what they're calling over in the Middle East. The only difference is in the Middle East, if you go to the biblical text, if you go to the Sumerian text, they tell you that a war broke out. Okay? So, uh, shout out to Nisipu. Just in passing earlier today, she talked about uh, Virginia City, 
which that blew my mind, blew my locks all the way back, honey. I had to scratch my locks and everything on this, honey. Because Virginia City is actually in Nevada. Virginia City is a census-designated place. What the heck is that? Census Bureau. What is the hell is a CDP? Census-designated place is a concentration of population defined by the United States Census Bureau for statistical purposes only. Mm -hmm. CDPs have been used in each decennial census since 1980 as the counterpart of incorporated places such as self-governing cities and towns and villages. Yeah. So, Nisi Poo, there's some more research for you on these census-designated places. I straight up smells a rat on that one. But let's continue. Virginia City is a census-designated place that is the county seat of Story County, Nevada, and the largest community in the county. The city is part of the Reno-Sparks Metropolitan Statistical Area. Virginia City developed as a boom town mm -hmm. with the 1859 discovery of Comst Comstock Load. I don't know if that's Load or Lodi. Oh, oh, Lodio. Mm -hmm. Child, I'm trying to keep this clean for the babies. But I swear to y'all, I want to, to, to let it rip. But I'm going to restrain myself. The Comstock load is a load of silver ore located under the eastern slope of Mount Davison, a peak in Virginia Range in Virginia City, Nevada, which was the first major discovery of silver ore in the United States and named after American miner Henry Comstock. The first major silver deposit discovered, discovery in the United States with numerous mines open. The population peaked in the mid-1870s with an estimate of 25,000 residents. The mines output declined after 1878, and the population declined as well as a result. As of the 2010 census, the population of Virginia City was about 855, and that of Story County was 4,000. Okay, so we fixing the two. So over here, y'all see, this is Nevada. Okay, y'all see where Virginia City is located. So let's uh, look at this little view. I, I can't make this up, y'all. Y'all see these waste piles? You see these waste piles? You see all of this up here? I can't see it all, so I'm not sure if this goes into a peak or if the top of it is flat. Uh, or broken off like an ancient tree. But nonetheless, the original excavators excavated this area and how they were able to get to the silver was because the ancient trees were cut down. 
right, let's look at another picture. Okay. Poo chow. This is a hot mess. This, lo this looks like a straight up wasteland family. This looks like a straight up wasteland. So this whole area, even that thingy, that this is a waste pile. So when they came in, in in the 1800s and started mining, they were just going into either openings, and it does I don't even see no ancient trees. So they were just going into these waste piles at this point. This is this is truly a wasteland. Truly, it was. Okay, so that, that picture I just showed was from 1867 to 1868. Okay, let's see what they up up there talking about. Child, they done made my nerves bad. Okay, so this is a rendition of it. Yeah, fam. This was this pile. <sighs> Baby, this is a wasteland. Yeah, this is this is a wasteland, fam. So they were just able to come in and extract the silver that was exposed from the original excavation that they did from the ancient trees and uh, the stockpiles of the waste. Wow. Okay. Nisi Poo, I see what you said. You was going to go take pictures of this. Shall. Let's go head on. Let's look at this. Bonanza Ore, Consolidated California and Virginia Mine, the Comscott Lude. Hmm. So y'all see the silver in there. I see a little bit of gold. This is difficult. Okay, many tons of rich gold and silver ore, such as the example shown here, built and supported Virginia City. Timber, timbering the mines of the Comscot. Okay, so them getting in them piles and uh, going in probably deeper into the uh, root system that was already dug up to extract uh, silver and gold. Child. This is difficult. Ah, child, so let me see a little bit of here. My blood is boiling, baby. Virginia City population increased from 4,000 in 1862 to over 15,000 in 1863. It fluctuated depending on the mining output. United States Census figures do not reflect all of these frequent changes. Nonetheless, Virginia City overnight became one of the largest cities in America's Southwest. 
For the 1880s U.S. US Census, Virginia City was even larger than some of today's largest city of the entire U.S., such as Phoenix, San Diego, Jacksonville, and even Dallas. The city included gas and sewer lines, the 100-room International Hotel with elevator, three theaters, the Maguire Opera House, four churches, and three daily newspapers. Many of the homes and buildings were made of brick. Mm -hmm. Seeing a reoccurring theme with stuff made of brick. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Virginia City out in Nevada reminds me of the Virginia Company. The financing for the colonization of the Americas. With this center of wealth, many important local politicians and business businessmen came from the mining camp. At its peak, after the big bonanza of 1873, Virginia City had a population of over 25,000 residents and was called the richest city in America. Dominated by San Francisco's money interests, Virginia City was heralded as the sophistication interior partner of San Francisco. San Francisco on the coast of Virginia City inland became the mantra of West Coast Victorian entrepreneurs. Early Virginia City settlers were in large part the backwash from San Fran and the California gold rush 10 years before. So again, out in Cali, pulling, extracting, excavating, mining, I say terraforming and stealing and raping and pillaging the natural resources of Mama Earth. Mine owners who made a killing in the Comstock mine spent most of their wealth in San Francisco. A San Francisco stock market existed for the exploration of Comstock mining. The Bank of California Finance building the financial district of San Francisco with the money from the Comstock mines. The influence of the Comstock load rejuvenated what was the ragged little town of 1860 San Fran. So y'all peeping that? San Fran was built off the back of the resources, literally, of Nevada. Of the ancient trees, roots, and minerals from Nevada. Nearly all the profits of the Comstocks were invested in San Francisco real estate and in the erection of fine buildings. Thus, Virginia City built San Francisco. The Comstock success measured in value of the time period totaled about $400 million. Mining and its attraction of population was the economic factor that caused the separation of Nevada Territory from Utah and later justified and supported Nevada statehood.
The mining industry dominated Virginia City, making it an uh, industrial center similar to those on the East Coast. We know that, baby, because anytime you name it Virginia City, we already know what time it is, boo. But the city retains some of its frontier flavor. The social history of the town has emphasized the high number of immigrants among its residents. The high number of whom? Immigrants among its residents. Miners, largely from where? Cornwall, England. Huh? Where 10 mines had been developed based on hard rock technology flooded with Comstock. The new English immigrants were one of the largest ethnic groups. Many of the miners who came to the city were, were Cornish or Irish. In 1870, shout out to legendary Top Cats. He just went over once again about them Asians. In 1870, Asians were 7.6 of the population, primarily Chinese workers who settled in many Western towns after they had completed construction on the transcontinental railroads. So now when people want to come for people talking about their individual family heritage and lineage, and trying to tell people who they are and trying to tell us who other people are, you better come correct and you better come with your receipts. The Chinese filled niche markets, such as laundry workers and cooks. Through time, the numerous independent Comstock mines became consolidated under ownership of large monopolies. A group called the Bank Crowd, dominated by William Sharon in Virginia City and William Ralston in San Francisco, financed the mines and the mills of Comstock until they had a virtual monopoly. See, we keep take to keep telling y'all, keep telling y'all, for these folk, this was about business. By manipulating stock through rumors and false reports of mining wealth, some men made fortunes from the stocks of Virginia City mines. When it appeared that Comstock load was finished, the city's population declined sharply with 10,000 leaving in 1864 and 1865. By the late 1860s, a group of Irish investors threatened the bank crowd's control. Oh, Top Cats is going to love this. John Mackey and partner James Fair began as common mi miners, working their way up to management positions in the mines. Mm -hmm. That Mackey name, baby. They were some big pimps, some big players with some big money. They had their hands at everything. By purchasing stock in the mines, they realized financial independence. Child, 
Let me sit, sit my dog on water. Trying to keep this clean for the babies, but baby, I promise you, I want an MF and SB. Their partners, James Claire Flood and William S. O'Brien, stayed in San Francisco and speculated in stock. The Irish Big Four or Bonanza Kings. Who the heck are the Bonanza Kings? Okay, the Bonanza Kings, also called the Silver Kings, was a nickname given to the four men who's, who started a stockbroker called Flood and O'Brien and commonly known as the Bonanza Firm. Bonanza is a Spanish term meaning a rich ore body. See, they didn't learn get me something new. Never knew that. As the men were called, eventually controlled the Consolidated Virginia Mines where the big bonanza was discovered in 1860, I'm sorry, 1873. The next few years were some of the most profitable on the Comstock as the bank crowd lost control to the Irish Big Four. Population reached 25,000 in 1875. So now I you got the Virginia Company and the King and the King's boys, Nemcus, make no mistake. Um McKay, all of them, they the King's boys, Nem. They out excavating the resources out west. Speculating, trading, they kicking it up, having a funky good time when they are clearly immigrants. And what's so sickening about this entire thing, as we now discover and we now know, they are literally profiting and excavating off of the remnants of the original destruction and terraforming of the planet. So I don't know how many times we have to keep pointing out the parasitic behavior of folks of what they are calling doing business and the destruction that it causes to the planet. Mining operations were hindered by the extreme temperatures in the mines caused by natural hot springs. In winter, the miners would snowshoe to the mines and then have to descend to work in high temperatures. These harsh conditions contribute to a low life expectancy and earn miners the nickname of hot water plugs. Aldo Sutro built the Sutro Tunnel to drain the hot springs water to the valley below. But by the time it was completed in 1879, the mines had substantially passed the intersection level as their tunnels had been dug even deeper. So just as I said, they were digging the remaining uh, roots of those ancient trees. 
1879, the mines began to play out and the population fell to just under 11,000. So let's just real quick, because y'all know it's always some type of fire, honey, or some type of flood. Child, let's see what they talking about. Between 1859 and 1875, Virginia City had numerous serious fires. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. October 26, 1875, fire dubbed the Great Fire caused 12 million in damage. The a, a spectacle beggar's description, the world was on fire, a square mile of roy, roaring flames. When a church caught fire, McKay was heard to say, damn the church. We can build another if we can keep the fire from going down these shafts. Though the con, Virginia and offer hosting, I'm sorry, hoisting, Works burned. The fire did not penetrate the con. Virginia shaft and only reached 400 feet into the Ophir shaft. Railroad car wheels were melted. Brick buildings went down like paper boxes and 2,000 were left homeless. Were dead. If the railroad cars were melted, I'm assuming they were metal. That was one hefty fire. Now, I'm just speculating that if they were uh, dipping and dabbing, messing around with those um, heat piles, i.e. waste piles, which remember, if you pile up waste, it heats up. And because what comprise of that waste are crystals and minerals, that makes it dangerously hot to the point where it could melt metal. Okay, now I'm just speculating. In assuring months, the city was rebuilt and majority of the area now designated as the National Historical Landmark Histori Historic District dates to this later time period. However, the Bonanza period was at an end in 1880. Uh, just real quick on what they talk about on Virginia City and Mark Twain. The writer and humorist Samuel Clemens, then a reporter on the local territorial enterprise newspaper, first used the pen name Mark Twain in Virginia City. Now that I didn't know. Y'all didn't learn me something else. <laughs> In February 1863, Clemens lived in Virginia City and wrote for the Enterprise from fall 1862 until 1864. His departure was to avoid a duel with a local newspaper editor upset over Clemens' reporting. Clemens returned to Comstock re region twice on lecture tours, first in 1866 when he was mugged with dead on the divide. It was rough. The muggers relieved Clemens of his watch and his money. The robbers turned out to have a practical joke played on Clemens by his friends. He did not appreciate the joke, but he did retrieve his belongings, particularly his gold watch worth $300, which had a great sentimental value. Clemens' book, Roughing It, 1872, includes this and other antidotes about the city. Clemens' second return occurred in 1868 at the time of the hanging of John 
Melian, who was convicted of murdering a well-like madam. Child, child, they had a lot of dramatization. <laughs> so it's saying Virginia City, talking about the climate, Virginia City has a hot summer Mediterranean climate with warm to hot summers and cooler and rainier winters. Okay, so we're just going to do another picture view from um, Virginia City from Boot Hill. Child, this is so wastelandish. Yeah, this is real wastelandish. Child. <coughs> Let me see. Uh, I think we looked at, I can't remember if we looked at this last picture. Okay, so y'all, look how far out. <sighs> Can you all imagine? I can't even imagine before the original terraforming happened of the ancient trees. I can't, I, I, I can't even imagine the beauty and the splendor of this land. And now all you see are these waste piles. And all of this rocky material in the back, I'm assuming, are remnants of uh, ancient tree roots. This, this is incredible. And so all they did at the original, after the original invaders, hundreds of thousands of years ago, came to planet Earth, knocking down the ancient trees and digging up the minerals. Now you have a second set of folks coming in and excavating the remnants of the ancient trees and once again displacing and taking advantage of the indigenous people. And this is not just the Americas. This happened all over the planet. And it is the same group of people doing the same group of things. Okay? So this particular read was from Virginia City, Nevada. Shout out to Nisi Pooh uh, for talking about this. She so happened to talk about it. And I'm like, wow, it's just going to do something on Nevada. Okay, so the purpose of me doing this family is just to let you all see nothing these folks are doing. I keep consistently saying it and hopefully providing some receipts for the fam. None of it is new. So even with this glorified electric vehicle and these lithium batteries, I hope that you understand that they still have to use the natural resources of planet Earth, Mother Earth, for their technology. Okay? So that's still digging in Mama and excavating for their supposedly and allegedly su superior technology. Okay, so we're going to continue to follow it. Um, I'm going to continue to watch closely this technology that they are coming out with, how they are building it. Uh, it's going to fall into one or two categories. 
either where they're using old remnants. Now that I'm up on game, they're using old remnants from Mama Earth, the ancient trees, because that's what cold was as well. That's what the lithium is as well. Or they're reverse engineering ancient technology, which was more natural using it from the ionosphere or the ether, from the air and from the ground. Gonna watch their technology very, very closely to see how they are reusing stuff. But make no mistake about it, family. <coughs> planet Earth, well, this part of planet Earth, what we known as planet Earth today, it is just the remnants of mass terraforming, all right? So I hope that you all got something out of this. Uh, this is, uh, and I wish everybody well on this Monday. This is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. Peace and love, family.